Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, host of the podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 21st, 2021, and this is show number 828. Well, before we get into the show, I wanted to mention that there was a rumor that there was going to be an Apple announcement on Tuesday, March 23rd. That's two days from when I'm recording and we haven't heard boo from Apple on it, so I highly doubt it's going to happen. But if it does, I want to remind everyone that whenever there's an Apple announcement, Steve and I really like to gather in our chat room at podfeet.com chat with any other NoSilla castaways who want to come join us. If you follow that link, podfeet.com chat, it'll take you into a Discord where you can lurk or create a name and log in. Steve and I are never on voice during these things, but rather we let everyone listen and we get to play in the chat room typing away furiously with brilliant commentary such as, wait, my feed froze. Can you guys still see it? Anyway, if and when we do get an announcement, I hope you'll join us in our live chat room. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is another episode of Programming by Stealth. In this installment, in our mini-series on learning Git, Bart gives us some foundational knowledge on how to work beyond being one person with one Git repository. Bart starts by reinforcing what he's explained before, that Git is a peer-to-peer technology, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around if you're used to client-server relationships. He walks us through three scenarios to explain how every actor gets a repository and why. Then he explains the jargon of local versus remotes. It's at this point that my head started to hurt and I started asking a lot of questions, but Bart claims this is where I'm value added to the podcast. I ask all the questions you might have, and I suspect many more than you do have. But Bart sticks with me and he makes sure I fully understand. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice, or you can find it by looking for Programming by Stealth. And of course, there's links to Bart's fabulous show notes at pbs.bartificer.net. Ever since Mike Price started working on how to automate the creation of chapter marks into the podcast using Keyboard Maestro, I've been taking baby steps to do things with this amazing macro tool myself. I am definitely still on the bunny slope with this tool, but I feel like I'm starting to get how it can help me. I'd like to tell you about a few of the automations I've been working on with this fully accessible macro tool. Recently, Jay Miller in our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack posted a very fun invitation to the community. He wrote, I wrote a couple of blog posts around working with text and keyboard maestro. This seems like the kind of folks that may have keyboard maestro needs, and I have a couple of days off, so if you have any requests on how to do things, just DM me. Background, I'm a Mac automator and developer. Well, I immediately wrote back and said, you've unleashed a monster, I'll get my list ready. And I did. The first thing I wanted help with was a tiny minor annoyance, but you know, one of those paper cuts that really gets to you if they go on too long. Just last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I walked you through all of the cool markup tools in Preview. I use these all day long. The paper cut problem is that by default, Preview opens with the markup toolbar closed. I asked Jay if he could help me make a macro to have it open automatically whenever a preview window was active. He and I went back and forth a bunch of times in an open Slack conversation, but after a while we figured we were just annoying everyone else, so we kept out at it one-on-one in DMs inside Slack for a little while. He gave me a big boost, first of all pointing out that there's a keyboard shortcut of Command-Shift-A to open the markup toolbar. I should have noticed that because that probably does most of what I need. But anyway, it was still fun to play in Keyboard Maestro, and he helped me do a lot of the early heavy lifting. 
Now, the basis of his idea was to have Keyboard Maestro look to see if the status of the button for showing the markup toolbar, or to see the status of the markup toolbar button. If it was grayed out, that meant the toolbar wasn't visible, so it would trigger the keyboard shortcut. After we got that working, I discovered another problem. If the window was too narrow, the show markup toolbar icon wasn't visible at all, so the macro wouldn't trigger. All by my lonesome, I figured out how to get Keyboard Maestro to measure the width of the window and resize it to the minimum width for the icon to show. I gotta tell you, I was very pleased with my little self. Now, my blind side as a developer is that I don't immediately think of all the ways things can go wrong. And it turns out I think that's an essential part of making sure there are not unintended consequences of your code. After I enabled my snazzy new macro, I started having all sorts of bizarre behaviors on my Mac. The weirdest one was uh, that I couldn't rename anything on my server when using the FTP client transmit. As soon as I hit enter on a file name, which should have turned it blue so I could type over the name, it would deselect the item and the window would kind of jiggle. The good news is that I just enabled the macro, so I quickly guessed that might be the culprit. Disabling my macro allowed transmit to operate normally, so it was the culprit. I figured out how to get my Keyboard Maestro macro to only work when preview is in front, and now my precious markup toolbar is always visible. If you've done any work at all in Keyboard Maestro, you know that this is a tiny, teeny, teeny, itsy bitsy little macro that's not very powerful, but I still felt like I made fire when I built it, with Jay as my fire starter. That spark is what leads me to my slightly more complex and super useful pair of macros that I did write all by myself. A long time ago, I wrote an automator script to launch all of my applications that I need to run the live show. I wrote a second one that closes the applications for the live show. The script works, but there are things it doesn't do or doesn't do really well. It's really kind of scope creep from the original problem to be solved, but once you get something automated, you just start thinking about refinements and improvements as you use the automation and think, oh, it could do this and it could do that. Well, I'm also concerned that at any moment, Apple is going to abandon Automator and instead give us shortcuts on the Mac. In the meantime, Keyboard Maestro is independent of Apple's decisions in this space, so I'm embracing it. Let's review the full set of requirements I have for my live show macros as they stand today. First, quit all backup and syncing applications to minimize network traffic. So I want to stop Dropbox, Google, Google Drive, and Carbon Copy Cloner, and all of those allow themselves to be disabled. Sadly, Backblaze, which I keep running constantly, does not allow itself to be disabled temporarily. I wrote to them, and the only option they gave me was to change syncing to when I push the button, and then reboot the Mac. To change it back, another reboot would be required, and I'm not willing to do that. So Backblaze is probably running while you're listening to me uh, or while I'm recording this for you. The next thing I need my macro to do is turn off Wi-Fi. Mimo Live, the application Steve and I use to broadcast the different video feeds of ourselves, and my recording app Hindenburg, uh, that Mimo Live application does not operate well with Wi-Fi turned on, so I needed to turn it off. I also need to launch the six applications I use and open a finder window so I can easily get to my listener recordings. Finally, I need to resize all of the windows and move them to the locations that I prefer. The Live Shows Over macro needs to do the opposite and a few more things. Needs to enable all those backup and sync services I turned off. Needs to turn Wi-Fi back on. Needs to quit some of the Live Show required apps. I don't kill them all because when I, when, while I may want to stop broadcasting, I often still have work left to do in some of the apps like Hindenburg and Mars Edit. 
I launched the Auphonic website so it's ready for me to upload the podcast for processing. And I launched Feeder so it's ready for me to update the podcast feed to deliver the show to you. I was really surprised at how easy it was to replicate these actions in Keyboard Maestro and to make a much more reliable process. For some reason, with my Automator script, toggling Wi-Fi was a problem. I could get it to turn off, but I was never able to get it to turn back on. With Keyboard Maestro, I used an Apple script I found on GitHub, and credited, of course, in my own code, not to toggle it, but to specifically turn it off, and in the second set, turn it on. This one may have worked in Automator if I'd done that, but I've moved on by now. Now, Mike Price taught me a valuable thing in Keyboard Maestro that I don't think I would have thought to go looking for on my own. You can group actions together and they get an enclosing box. You can also change the color of the background of the group and then give it a name. This makes for very well-organized code where at a glance, you can jump in and fix something. For example, I have a group entitled Launch Syncing and Backup Apps with a bright lime green background. Another touch I like to add to my automations is a completion sound. I know when I hear the sound hero, my live shows over macro has completed successfully. And just because it's fun, I like to add an icon for my macro. So for the live show macro, I made it a flame. And for the live shows over uh, macro, it's a fire extinguisher. That seems logical, right? Well, I created both of these macros with a hotkey trigger, which works well. But then I realized that I need to run the live show macro every single week at about the same time. I figured out how to have it trigger at a time of day, but I kept my hotkey trigger so I can enable it at any time as well. None of these macros I've worked on are groundbreakingly clever, but since Keyboard Maestro users are happy sharing a lot, I put links to download my macros so you can see how they look in Keyboard Maestro yourself. Keyboard Maestro lets you import other people's macros with the File Import Macro Safely option. By safely, they mean when they're imported, they are automatically disabled. You can safely then peruse what the macro does, learn from it, modify it, and only when you're confident that you understand it and you're not going to damage anything, then you can enable them. My next target for automation is to fix what Apple most certainly thinks is a design choice, but I would call it a bug in Big Sur. Every finder window and every save as and open window starts with the left sidebar too narrow to show the text of the items I have in my sidebar. Every week, I create a folder for the current week's NoCellacast. The name structure is NC underscore four characters for the year, two for the month, and two for the date. I put the most current week's folder in the left sidebar of the finder, and I usually keep at least the previous week's folder in the left sidebar as well. Sometimes the future week's uh, folder is already there. It's not uncommon for me to have content that I push out a, a week, so I need to quick I need quick access to that folder from the previous week and maybe to the future week. With this delightful change to the sidebar in Big Sur, I see two to three folders that are all called NC underscore 2021 underscore dot dot dot. That is not at all helpful to me. I've gotten a started automation in Keyboard Maestro that has already successfully widened the left sidebar to 220 pixels in Finder windows, but I'm still having trouble getting that change to apply to both open and save as dialog boxes. I'm having fun and I may conquer it between the great documentation on the Keyboard Maestro wiki, the community who supports it in the forum, and of course, Jay and Mike. So far, I've succeeded in making really janky behavior on my Mac with this open save dialog box problem, but uh, I don't know, I may still solve it. Now, you might be wondering if you should try Keyboard Maestro. I asked Bart if he had tried it yet. 
His answer was very interesting. He said that he's very tempted to dive in, and yet he's equally hesitant to try it. His reason for hesitation is that he's worried he'll enjoy it too much and spend a week automating a task that only takes two minutes to complete. I think that's a fully legitimate concern, and I guess everyone has to be able to manage their own impulses. I'm sure in a few cases I'm spending more time than I'm saving, like spending two hours writing a macro that essentially hits the keyboard shortcut, Command-Shift-A, and Preview, but I'm definitely on the steep slope of learning how to automate with Keyboard Maestro, so it's not really time wasted. Perhaps as I get better at it, I'll spend even more time, or perhaps I'll become more efficient with my time. What I can't say categorically is that my two live show macros do more than save me time. They create a predictable environment for the show. If I forget to turn off Wi-Fi, for example, my video will be choppy and broken up in the live show until I realize that I forgot that step. By default, my Logitech C920 doesn't have a way to store and launch with a good exposure and color profile. To overcome this limitation on the Mac, I use the menu bar app webcam settings. If I forget to launch that, again, my video looks bad, but with my automation, I never forget. When you're thinking about learning Keyboard Maestro, think about the things you do repeatedly that are not just time-wasting and annoying, but which are error-prone. Then let yourself get sucked into the madness. I'm sure I'll talk about Keyboard Maestro again as I continue on my coding and automation journey. For $36, it's already given me some fun and opened up my mind to how I can automate my Mac to do things for me. You can find it at KeyboardMaestro.com. Last week, I talked on the show about tools and processes that have been developed to help the federal government ensure that all of their websites are accessible to those with disabilities. But, you know, what about regular companies? How do they ensure that their websites and other digital assets within their company and are accessible to their employees and customers? During the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference, I spoke with Andy Wasselchuk, who's in business development for a company called SiteImprove at SiteImprove.com. He talked about how they work to help companies use technology to make web accessibility the new norm. I was intrigued with the approach that SiteImprove takes that, that isn't all salesy and, and get you addicted to their service kind of, a, kind of a thing. So I asked Andy to come on the show to explain a little bit more to us. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate your time, and uh, it was great connecting with you last week, and here we are. Yeah, now we got to figure out how to recreate the magic of our conversation, because I remember being really inspired. <laughs> yeah, let's give it a shot. I'm, um, I'm here for it. All right, so uh, talk about what Site Improve is, hopes to do for companies. Yeah, so Site Improve is a holistic digital marketing suite uh, where we've seen a lot of success with uh, accessibility initiatives from a variety of companies. You had mentioned uh, the regulations that are cracking down on kind of the, the federal side, but what we aim to do is empower organizations to uh, make the website or their websites and the web itself uh, more accessible to all, more inclusive in nature. Uh, and our approach has helped a variety of teams to uh, achieve their accessibility initiatives, which can be a daunting task uh, if you're not sure where to start. So I'll be happy to go into a little bit more uh, depth of uh, who we work with, what we do. And, um, you know, I'm appreciative of your time here and looking forward to chatting. Sure. And so you got a lot of buzzwords in there. You got all the right kind of phrases. Um, let, let's dig into exactly what you do. So uh, you come at, you come into a company and you look at my website and you tell me what? What do you, what do, you do? Do you run automated tests? Do you have people to do stuff? What do you do? 
Yeah, so we offer a variety of areas of support um, and accessibility obviously is one of our, our main focal points. Uh, what we'll do is automatically crawl or scan uh, all your public facing web content and report back to you on any uh, accessibility issues, any SEO shortages, uh, any analytics type uh, metrics that need improving. But in accessibility space, a lot of times uh, there's a tough you know, gap on where to start. How do we fix these things? And the teams that we work with aren't necessarily the most technical and have all the time and resources to devote to uh, achieving compliance. So we make that process a lot simpler for teams that are uh, maybe siloed across departments, uh, but helping them get to a common goal uh, to achieve their initiatives where we provide the framework and support uh, to go about those things. Now, part of what intrigued me in what you, we talked about at CSUN was that you don't really uh, just go in and do it for somebody. Because if you go in and do it for somebody, an hour later, they've created another website that's not accessible, right? So you guys have a little different approach. Um, talk to how you do that. How do you get people to know how to do this right? Yeah, so that's a great point is um, this is, you know, Site Improve is more of a long-term sustainable option where we empower your team uh, to take accountability to make those changes. So we'll provide all the framework and suggestions on how to go about becoming accessible, uh, but we'll really give you the, the resources and uh, the training that your team can then use uh, to address the challenges that come up either now or in the future. We see a lot of teams that have high turnover in this space. Um, so having a solution that has the ongoing support uh, to go ahead and, and change these things and fix them uh, is where we can come in. We also offer an academy program, which is geared uh, for all sorts of you know directions that our platform can help with, but more specifically in the accessibility space, uh, training and resources and tools uh, for teams to go ahead and make this process a lot easier. Um, so, so hopefully that kind of brings it up to speed a little bit better. So still a little bit on the buzzwordy side for, for, for the depth I'm looking for. So if um, you've, come into, you've come into my company, you've run the, the crawler, you say, okay, you guys make all these kinds of, uh, uh, these kinds of things need to change in order to make your website accessible, then do you use that knowledge of what you've learned about the way we've been doing things to train us to do it better in the future? Yeah, so it can be as granular as you'd like. If it's something as simple as an alt tag to an image, we can show you how to do that and how to train people on preventing that thing from being caught by our crawler and uh, what we see on our side. Um, so for and the audience, be, again, an alt tag is the alternative text that is the description of a, an image that gets read out loud when a screen reader finds an image. So it doesn't just say image, it tells you what it actually is. Yeah, exactly. And and that's uh, one of the common issues that we have. But again, there's a lot more complexities uh, and things that some companies don't have a reliable process for identifying and fixing. And we illuminate where those exist on the site, how to go about fixing them so their team can go in and have that knowledge um, both now and in the future. How about not doing it wrong in the first place? Is <laughs> yeah, that part of that's the training? Uh, if that was the the one tell uh, one all be all, um, I think we'd all be in a in a better space. But uh, again, these things are are you know if they don't have a, a strictly accessibility consultant or someone on staff to go ahead and fix these things, it's often hard to know where to start and where to get the training and support to make a more inclusive environment. 
Yeah, I would think that building it into everybody who touches the website's process as opposed to having a, an accessibility consultant. I mean, an accessibility consultant can test and tell you you're doing it wrong, but training people up front is a better way to make it not go wrong in the first place, where people understand that when I'm doing, you know, you, you teach somebody how to put an image on the website, well, part of that training is, and here's where the alt tag goes, and this is why you do it, to make sure it keeps happening. Um, so yeah, and that that can be a large challenge, like I said uh, earlier, for siloed teams or teams that don't collaborate a lot, is they want to make sure things are in inside their consistencies across departments. So having a, a single source of truth um, through our platform to not only illuminate the issues and show them how to fix them um, can really empower teams to be on the same page with how they're going about achieving their accessibility initiatives. Oh, you just taught me something I didn't hadn't heard you say before. You have a platform that people use at their at their company. Describe yeah, that. so the the site improved platform offers a comprehensive approach to everything digital, and and we're just diving into the accessibility portion of it. Uh, but we do offer you know more things outside of just accessibility, which I think is important to note. But um, the platform itself will report on any issue on the site, whether it's uh, readability or usability or uh, things of that nature um, to flag and show you how to correct them or suggestions that we would make um, based on our our standards, I guess you would call it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but there there's a yeah. lot more to it. Yeah. OK, so that's interesting. So is it constantly monitoring? Yep. So we can set things up uh, the way you would like uh, reports to be run for specific departments, um, either prioritizing, you know, traffic pages that are receiving a lot of views and clicks. Uh, you're going to want to go in there through the eyes of our platform, look at any accessibility issues, look at any quality issues, such as a broken link or something of that nature. Uh, and we'll be able to get that all in the same platform. Again, there's that <laughs> word. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's been helpful for for teams to prioritize, uh, get a good starting point, and have that ongoing support and training that they need both, um, you know, now and a, a more sustainable uh, approach in the future. One of the things I remember saying to you and uh, when we talked at CSUN was that uh, it seemed that your approach wasn't to do things for people. It was it wasn't to fish for people. It was to teach them how to fish. Would you just say that's a good description of the way you guys try to implement this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to have regulations coming across saying, you know, we need to work towards accessibility, but a site improve really believes that the, you know, making sure that the environment, the the internet and uh, the digital environment is inclusive for all um, is is the right thing to do. Um, so we want to make sure that teams have that empowered approach to proactively address uh, accessibility on their own. And, you know, we're just there to, to help them and collaborate and offer any input as best we can. Interesting. Um, I, I did like your approach because I, I think I likened it to, um, I know a lot of people who love their chiropractor and they say, man, this person just does the world of good to me. And I say, oh, how long have you been going to them? And they say eight years. Well, Okay, so they've just gotten you addicted to what they do for you, but it sounds like your approach is more to help you stand on your own, to, to have the tools and the training to keep that as a sustainable way to do business. Yep, definitely. The uh, the breadth of topics that we help with are, are going to improve not only your accessibility initiatives, but also all of your other digital marketing needs uh, through the eyes of one platform, one solution. Um, and accessibility just happens to be a space where uh, a lot of folks come to us across all different industries. 
Well, I like that because it <laughs> it's part of the same competitive advantage, right? It, the SEO is all about uh, you know making sure that your business is seen up front and and is seen as a quality site. And that's exactly what accessibility does for you. So it gets you more people, more quote unquote eyeballs to your site. Earballs. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, w whatever it may be. But yeah, there's um, a lot of links and uh, parallels between different aspects of how websites operate. And accessibility is kind of uh, ingrained in the, I guess, nucle nucleus, if you will. So uh, what better place to start by looking at that and diving into, you know, other areas of website traffic, website analytics, uh, things of that nature. You guys go beyond uh, websites into things like PDFs? Yeah, that's a that's a great topic. Um, we just launched uh, a, a next generation accessibility module, which helps address um, some of the more, I guess you would say, basic uh, things that most businesses use for. Uh, we offer several free courses on our website that uh, help with, you know, Microsoft Word accessibility, Microsoft PowerPoint accessibility, uh, and PDF scanning has been a, a big, um, you know area of emphasis that we can help with. Uh, so yeah, we do go outside of just public facing website content uh, into more, uh, I guess, unique areas that people look for accessibility support and help. So that helps in inside and outside the company, right? Right. And uh, I've been with Site Improve a year and a half, and I got to admit, I didn't know a ton about website accessibility when I started here. Uh, and I still have a ton to learn, but um, <laughs> it really is uh, a cool you know, topic to strive for and assist others with. And, um, you know, hopefully others can kind of take that same approach that we have and uh, we can collaborate one day in the future. I love to see uh, accessibility just being kind of a mainstream topic now. You know, it comes up all the time. It's not this little niche of like, okay, and then when you're done doing everything else, go go see if it's accessible. You know, now it's, now it's in the mainstream. So I really appreciate you coming on, Andy. Uh, if people want to find out more, they would go to siteimprove.com. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. We're located in 14 countries uh, across the world. Um, I'm over in Minneapolis. We originated in Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, but we do have um, a wide variety of offerings on our website that you can explore based on accessibility, based on any other part of our platform. And if you have any questions, um, you know, you can get in touch with me or, or someone else and we'd be happy to help. All right. You want to tell them how to get in touch with you? Yeah, Should I can I uh, give them your email address in the show notes. <laughs> or what yeah, would you that like would be that would be great. Um, my email address is just a is an Andy W A S at siteimprove.com. And that's S I T E I M P R O V E dot com. Great. Thank you very much for coming on, Andy. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot, Allison. I appreciate it. Well, after finishing my recording with Andy about Sight Improve, I told him that the audio coming from his headset microphone was extraordinarily, extraordinarily good. I am not a fan of headset mics because they're usually tinny and they sound scratchy sounding and they often pick up a lot of breath sounds, but his didn't. As you just heard, his audio was rich and full and had zero breath sounds. So I asked him what was the model, and I made him go find the box and show it to me. The model of headset he was using is the $250 Jabra Evolve 2 65. It's kind of weird. It's Evolve 2 and then a 65 after it. It comes in black or gold beige. It has soft-looking memory foam on-ear headphones and a padded over-the-ear strap. It comes with either a USB-A or USB-C Bluetooth adapter. You can charge with the included charging cable, or you can buy the charging stand for another 50 bucks. 
And he said he charges it maybe every 10 days. And in his job, he obviously is on a lot of phone calls. And he has never heard it say battery low, only battery medium a few times. Jobber says it will charge to 37 hours of battery in 90 minutes or 8 hours in a 15-minute fast charge. The one thing I'd like to see in a headset is an option for a wired 3.5mm connection for those of us uh, who have cases where Bluetooth is not an option, like when you need to monitor your own voice when you're doing a podcast. If you have trouble speaking directly into a mic and prefer a headset microphone, I really implore you to look into the Jabra Evolve 2 65. Everything is fiddly. Yes, everything is fiddly. I dictate reminders to myself all the time while I'm on my walks. I wear AirPods, so I interrupt my podcast listening by saying, Hey, S lady. And then I followed up with remind me to, and I say whatever I want to be reminded of. Now, I used to say remind me to whatever it is when I get home, but geofencing is really fiddly. It works maybe 30% of the time. So nowadays, I just pick a time when I think I'll be home for that reminder to go off instead. A lot of times, it's just to remind me to add it to a to to a to-do list or something like that. This works remarkably well. Sure, there's the occasional typo, but usually it's close enough to help me remember to check on something when I get home. For example, last week I asked Siri to remind me to, to ask if I can use Git to manage keyboard maestro macros. Git is a virtual control system for programming spelled G-I-T. When I got home, I had a reminder that said, ask if I can get to manage a keyboard maestro macros. She had correctly captured the name of keyboard maestro, including the capitalization, and but get was spelled G-E-T. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. I have noticed that dictation learns the words you use often, so keyboard maestro was clearly a known phrase for me. I think we can forgive the S lady for not being able to tell the difference between get and get. But last week, Steve and I walked to the beach and back, which is around five miles round trip, and dictation had zero idea of what I was trying to say the whole way there and the whole way back. It wasn't a word here and there that was wrong. It wasn't even close. Now, I didn't record all of the failures on that walk, but I do remember the very last one. I was listening to MacBreak Weekly, and Alex Lindsay was talking about augmented reality models, which are in a format called USDZ. He said that if you go to apple.com and do a search for USDZ on your iPhone or iPad, you can view these cool models in augmented reality. I wanted to remember to look at that when I got home. So I said to Siri, hey, S lady, remind me to look up USDZ at apple.com. You want to know what she wrote in my reminders? Pay JF. JF Brissett is my editor over at Screencast Online, and I'm sure he'd love it if I paid him some money. But how is that even vaguely close to look up USDZ at apple.com? I rebooted my phone and dictation started working again. So thanks, Siri, for proving that everything is fiddly. I find the whole topic of assistive tech fascinating, as you may have gathered by now. I know a lot more about assistive tech for the visually impaired than for the other fields, and I'm trying to push myself to expand my horizons. At the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference, I saw a talk that was way outside my knowledge base entitled Interaction with Home Assistance for People with Dysarthria. It was presented by PhD candidate Aisha Jadot at Cardiff University School of Computer Science and Informatics. Well, I didn't know what dysarthria was, so I looked it up. According to the Mayo Clinic, dysarthria occurs when the muscles you use for speech are weak or you have difficulty controlling them. Dysarthria often causes slurred or slow speech that can be difficult to understand. 
Common causes of dysarthria include nervous system disorders and conditions that cause facial paralysis or tongue or throat muscle weakness. Certain medications can also cause dysarthria. Well, after learning the definition of dysarthria, let's talk about the problem Ms. Jodeau is hoping to solve. We've all experienced the difficulties with so-called smart assistants when they don't understand what we're trying to say to them. I learned from listening to Ms. Jodeau's talk that it is ever so much harder for people who cannot produce clear speech. This lack of clarity can be because their speech is too slow, or they have to breathe more often in their speech patterns and have trouble sustaining long sentences. Ms. Jadot's research is on whether an intermediary device could basically be a translator between the human and the home assistant. Her proposal is to use what she called nonverbal voice cues. By that, she means any non-word sound that can be produced by a person. Her theory is that if a person with dysarthria can make some sounds, such as a hum, whistle, or vowel sound, perhaps a dictionary of phrases could be produced that would be translated into questions for the voice assistant. She she suggested the example of a person saying, ah, and that means play the news, or I could mean what's the weather. Ms. Jadot is proposing to train a Raspberry Pi to listen for the nonverbal voice cue and translate it to the correct command. To protect the privacy of the user, the Raspberry Pi will pass the command as text to the cloud service for Amazon or Google. The cloud service would send the command to the assistant, which would perform the requested action. She said that nonverbal voice cues will be decided based on dysarthric phonetic features and articulation capabilities in addition to target user's input. I'm a little unclear on that part. It sounded like she was saying that there's a set of nonverbal cues that most people with dysarthria can make. I have done zero studies of dysarthria. Heck, I just learned the word this week. But from the description of the causes of dysarthria, It seems unlikely to me that people can make a common set of sounds who all have dysarthria. She did say they would be interviewing people with dysarthria to learn the sounds they can make. I'm sure she knows what she's doing, but I'd sure like to know if anyone else has more information on this and can educate me even more. Ms. Jado didn't describe how the training of the Raspberry Pi would occur. In a finished product, I envision that you'd have an interface to the Raspberry Pi where you make a sound and then type in what you want that sound to represent. When you think about it, even with without dysarthria, wouldn't you just rather yell, bah, at your home assistant instead of, hey, A-Lady, turn on the basement lights? At any given time, one of my smart devices has a name I simply can't remember, so I think I'd really like to just be able to make phonetic sounds instead. Ms. Jadot's work is still a study at this point to see if the concept will work, but I really like how she's targeting a super important problem to be solved. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. What's shaking this week, Bart? Um, what is shaking this week? I think Microsoft software is shaking in all the wrong ways, but we'll get to that. Ruh-roh. Well, Rutro for sysadmins of self-hosted exchange, but uh, I'm not one of those. <laughs> so, <All right. laughs> yeah, it's mean of me, but anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so getting straight in, really, to the feedback and follow-ups. Um, so we talked last time about the fairly substantial... It was four bugs in uh, the on-premise self-hosted version of Microsoft Exchange, and as we we as we met last time, there were there was talk of those flaws being actively attacked. 
and Microsoft had just released an out-of-band patch. Well, we now know it was tens of, if not hundreds of, thousands of American corporations, let alone corporations around the world, were attacked through these flaws. And there were backdoors installed into their infrastructures. And it was enough that the White House released a statement on it. Yay. So, yeah. Um, Brian Krebs pulled together a timeline as best as he can figure it out of how this all went down. And I am really sorry to say I am just left scratching my head going, Microsoft, why did you think it was OK to wait three months to release this patch? Oh, really? I, so it was it was they knew about it for three months? January 6th was the first day that they were notified. Hmm. And they released a patch on March 7th. And I'm just left there going, how did you not grok how catastrophic this was about to become? Yikes. I, so I heard yeah, somebody so, describe this as actually being worse than solar winds. That's a really hard thing to quantify because it's so different. Okay. Well, because one, you don't even know what they've got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know it, what they've got with this attack? Well, we know whether there's a whole bunch of tools that have been released to help you know if you've been compromised. So I think in this case, you're more clear whether or not you have a problem which in theory means you're easier to clean up after yourself if, if you can at least detect that you have a mess. But either way, I, 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 this is a good argument for getting cloud-hosted services because then you're not looking after this kind of low-level infrastructure yourself. So, you know, sort of, I'm happy to But that just means you have somebody to blame, right? Well, yes and no, because the cloud provider is going to be, like, I mean, it's not impossible for there to be a, cat a catastrophe in a cloud service like G Suite or Office 365, but they have a dedicated security team that can watch everyone's all at once. So they, they have a much better visibility of when a flaw comes under active attack in the wild because it's all together. So there's one place you can watch. And we know that they have very good teams because we know they've proactively told companies they've been hacked repeatedly that was one of the things that came out of the solar winds actually was that one of the reasons people knew they were in trouble was because microsoft told them it's like our security stuff has picked up weird behavior on your office 365 okay so it, it's sort of it's a strange analogy but bear with me um it's a bit like the difference between trying to be having electric cars which still use electricity made from coal and using petrol powered cars you could either stick a small carbon capture device on every tailpipe or one centralized carbon capture device at the power plant. And it's much easier to capture it at the power plant than it is to have lots of little tailpipes because individual companies don't have the resources to have, you know, high end security teams, but centralized providers do. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, the, the, you know, a lot, basically, if you know a sysadmin working for a large corporation, the chances are very high they would really appreciate a free coffee. So, <laughs> buy them one. Yeah, thanks. We now know, thanks to Bloomberg, that back in uh, February, when Parler came back on the internet, they tried to come back in the app store, and we now know that Apple went, eh, no. Because of, quote, highly objectionable content, so... I don't think we're particularly surprised by that, but hey, we, no, we know no. a little more now. Yeah. Another small update is uh, there was a lot of criticism that Apple's own apps didn't have an easy way to see their privacy nutrition labels because they're not in the App Store, right? You don't go to the App Store to find messages. 
because it's already on your phone. So there was c complaints from Facebook that, well, Apple's labels aren't easy to find. So Apple said, okay, fine, we'll make a page with all of our labels. They have, they're all there, they're all together. And it says what you expect because Apple's whole business model is built around selling you stuff instead of selling you. So the labels are very clean as you would expect. I did but hear hey, an interesting take on that is sometimes when we look at privacy labels, we may go, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing that. But if you have kind of like a baseline of what Apple does, that's sort of like a, a known good or trustworthy thing. like, And it's like, oh, they do that and we know they're not tracking us, so maybe that's okay. I mean, maybe that, maybe that will devolve over time and Apple starts tracking us, but as of right now, we're pretty sure they're not. So if it says we will collect this data, then that's probably okay data to be collected by somebody else. Yeah, and context really matters, right? Because the privacy nutrition label on a weather app, I would expect to be different than the privacy nutrition label on a flashlight app because the weather app should be tracking my location. The flashlight right. should not. Right, right. You know, I, I'm real tired of all the pop-ups asking me what I want to do, but I'm really, really happy there's all the pop-ups asking what I'm gonna, I want to do. Because <laughs> I, know. I get things like, you know, I'm testing some mutant uh Let's say it was I was I was trying out a different mind mapping app and it said, "Hey, can I have access to your contacts?" No, no. Why would you get my <laughs> contacts? You know, and I get those things all the time. They're always asking for a, uh, you know, can, can I look at your calendar? Oh, can I? Can I look in there? No, you don't need my calendar. If I if I get to a point where I'm asking it to do a calendary thing, then why don't you ask me then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I love about but. Apple's approach, which thankfully has been copied by Google and Android, is that you actually can say no, and it's against the App Store rules for them to make the app break. Yeah, yeah, because it used to, right? You'd say no, it would yeah. go, fine, I'm going to take my ball and go home and not let you play. Or you had the Android model, which was, we will tell you in the App Store everything the app wants, and if you download the app, you agree. Well, you, well, you, get, an, you get one agree button, I think. Y yeah, Instead and if you say of, no, as the you ask things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know this doesn't fit here, but I've been wanting to say okay. this uh, in PBS at some point, but a lot of websites are now popping up a, th a big thing about their cookies. And they, I really recommend you actually go into what they offer you because all the ones that are doing these big pop-ups very often have two options. You can, you can choose the lowest level, which is, I really need these cookies to function. And I, these are all the things I'm going to do if you let me. And often the, the button labels are kind of not misleading, but maybe the big bright one is the one that's let me have all the info. But if you just, it only takes three seconds on each website, but just look at it and go, hey, look, they are offering me the option of not being tracked across the internet. Let me choose that one. The first couple of times yeah. I was just like, oh, do it, do it, do it. Leave me alone. And then I started looking at them and realized, no, this is a, this is a good kind of pop-up. Yeah, and it, it, you're right. There's a lot of social engineering going on in those pop-ups where they're meeting the letter of the GDPR, which is that you have to be able to opt out. Mm -hmm. But the button to just, oh, just accept everything will be a bright, happy color, yeah. very big, Smell right face, in your eye line. You know, and off, the, the button to say essential cookies only is usually in a faded gray to look mm. like an already clicked on link somewhere at the bottom of the page where you're not going to notice it. It's you're like, not, yeah, okay. You're, you're making horrible, really. But one of the other things I noticed was I went into one and I said, uh, I unchecked the boxes for the unessential cookies. 
But then the obvious button to push was the one to keep my previous preferences. And, oh. I, and I clicked it and then I went, hey, wait a minute. Wait and a so, minute. Yeah, yeah. So now I pay attention to exactly what does it say. And you do have to pay attention. You do have to do a little bit of reading, but it doesn't take that long. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's fascinating, actually, because you get to see all of the tricks of the trade because they're deploying every so-called anti-pattern mm-hmm. is the term of art. I don't think they're awful, though. I really don't think it's, it's quite as egregious as we're making it out. I think it's, it's better than it you fits. think. It's better than you would expect. It's also a way of judging how I find it a way of judging where I choose to get my news. Mm. Uh, and if their pop-up is particularly full of anti-patterns, I sort of find myself going, yeah, I'll unsubscribe from that site in my RSS reader and I'll go to this one instead because I don't want to be bombarded with too many copies of the same news story. So I like to keep my RSS reader trimmed. Uh-huh. And if you do something to make me cranky, you'll get thrown out and I'll replace you with someone else. Uh, okay. So that explains why, actually, if you, if you were to do a frequency analysis of which websites get link juice from Security Bits show notes, you'll find it's a small number of sites get my link juice because they're the sites who haven't made me cranky in the last 10 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 10 years is a long time to make me cranky. And a lot of sites have made me cranky. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. So anyway, yeah, so they're, they're a little bit under the covers. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good description, actually, of, of those pop-ups. Okay, so Apple launched a privacy hub. The other thing that's going on with Apple then is the the long-awaited, you know, it's a bit like Tomorrow Never Comes, the long-awaited app tracking transparency feature. Um, Two developments on the Facebook angle. We had a bunch of former Facebook employees come out and tell the world what the world knew anyway, that this whole, will somebody think of the small businesses was hogwash. It's like, no, it's not about small businesses. They don't stand to lose here at all. It's about Facebook Central standing to lose here. Right, right. This isn't, you know, news at 10, you know, stuff happened. Yeah, whatever. Um, what is interesting, though, is that Mark Zuckerberg was in a clubhouse call, which is kind of interesting in itself. Um, but he made a comment to the effect that actually this whole app tracking transparency thing, it's probably better for Facebook in the long run. Because if there's no third party tracking, then people will want to have a first party relationship with Facebook. Hmm. Because that's where all the people are. So it's, well, it's well, but see, he's still telling the truth because uh, it's, it's the, um, it's saying that it still does hurt the small businesses, but man, it's still going to be great for us. I'm still not convinced that it'll hurt the small businesses part, but yeah, you're right. It's like, oh, this glass is half full. Oh, look, the other half is full too. Huh, look at that. <laughs> It, it, it was I was just interested that he was actually so honest because he, uh, it, Facebook's commentary has been so disingenuous in this whole thing. It, it was kind of interesting to see this moment of honesty. And I don't think he's wrong. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, it, was, it, I, I, it caught my eye or my ear. I'm not sure which way to put that. But anyway. Um, and then also related to app traffic transparency, we had reports come out early in the week that the Chinese government, through one of their media agencies, was working on a way of defeating app tracking transparency. And they were instructing Chinese companies to implement this new API they were developing that would bypass ATT by basically not using the IDFA, the ID for advertisers. And unsurprising to me within 24 hours of those news reports apple sent a letter to all developers going yeah if you work around att we're going to throw you out of the app store 
because it's not just a technical limitation. It's also a policy thing. These are the App Store rules. You accept the rules, the spirit of the rules, and not just whether or not you use this particular one identifier. Do you if understand the how, that, how they got a different identifier in there, though? That was something well, I... they didn't get a different identifier. What they're basically doing is throwing everything at the wall. So they were talking about using, um, uh, basically trying to find every signal they could to find every bit of entropy they could find and collect it together to find probable links. So the, the standard fingerprinting is the word my brain wasn't picking up. They were also trying to get, they were also trying to use things like IP addresses and sort of assume that they could reconnect sessions that way. If you're on the same IP address at the same time as this other person with a different ID, you're probably the same person, so reconnect the IDs. Okay. And then there was also talk of getting access to the IMEI number, which I don't understand how they would do that, but that the IMEI numbers were mentioned in the Ars Technica story, and that sort of made me go, really? You can do that? I thought they were not anymore. I thought they they weren't accessible. Right. I remember but that being being changed. So do I, which is why it sort of, uh, I really wish Ars Technica had dug into some detail because that, that just rang, that just didn't sound right to me. Yeah, maybe they, maybe they missed a tip on that. But I, yeah, so, it, yeah, it the was point- interesting to think, what if ever all of these, I mean, I know they were encouraging all Chinese companies to use this, uh, this separate secret uh, method of tracking us. If they'd all been able to successfully do it on day one, would Apple have said, okay, China, you're out? I guess they would have done an app by app, right? They wouldn't have. They would have basically gone, "Well, you're using that illegal API, so you're out of the app store until you fix your app. You're using that illegal API, you're out of the app store." Yeah, but I mean, that would have been. What if they all did it on day one? Well, then it would have been a very interesting day one, wouldn't it? <laughs> a lot of work. I don't know if it's a search change all or. Well, I mean, if it's an API, it should be very easy to pick up automatically, right? Basically, you've put it into your malware detection filter. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> you just have it flag up automatically as part of the automatic checks. Um, so the next story I have in the show notes is a deep dive. I don't know if it is a deep dive, but I nope. wasn't really sure where to put it. But you said, Bart, I'd like to do a story. So I was like, okay. Yes, and I've been frantically putting it into the show notes because I didn't realize it wasn't in the show notes that I sent you. But uh, okay, I've got it here. So last week, a big news story was that T-Mobile was going to start tracking users for advertising on their phones. And I posted the story in our Slack uh, that was the one I posted was the Boy Genius Report, BGR, where they showed in this uh, in this article how you can opt out of being tracked by T-Mobile. And I was sitting there all smug and happy that I didn't have T-Mobile and look how bad T-Mobile is when uh, Sandy pointed out that most cell companies in the U.S. already do this. She was very glad that what the real story was, was that T-Mobile notified users and that there was a way to opt out. So it was kind of like, well, you don't want them tracking you and you don't want them to have opted you in. Those are both bad. But the fact that there was a way to opt out and the fact that they told you was good. So at that point, uh, a couple other people started uh, chatting about it. And uh, uh, shoot, I can't remember who it was. Somebody said, well, AT&T used to do this. And I was like, well, well, they don't do that. And I know Bart has told us. I'm positive Bart has told us that that the at least the American uh, ISPs are tracking our web traffic. And uh, and once I was reading this and thinking about it, I was remembering that Bart had told us. However, it's right now it's become more and more and more and more vivid what that means to be tracked on the web. 
I think it's it's more vivid to me anyway, and I'm pretty dang sure that I don't want it. So I thought, okay, let me see if I can figure out how to disable it. Uh, see if AT&T is really doing it. Is there a way to disable it? Um, actually, let me back up. I went to Verizon first, and I found that Verizon uh, did have right in their privacy setting or their privacy statement. Yep, we track your web traffic for to give you relevant ads. And so then I went over to AT&T and I was found a way to disable relevant ads on all of our cell phones. Um, so then I had a friend of mine look into the, her Verizon account and sure enough, she was able to find the same thing. They call it um, customer proprietary network info. Uh, let's say they've got three things, customer proprietary network info, business and marketing insights, <clears throat> excuse me, and relevant mobile advertising. So there were three different things she could turn off, which she very happily immediately turned off for all of her phones. Yeah. I've yeah. turned it off on all of my family's phones. So I did I did want to say that T-Mobile, I think, got a black eye for this, and they just proved themselves to be as bad as everybody else, except they, they had one step above the others is they told everybody they were doing it. They told the customers. They sent a privacy notice telling people they were doing it. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, right? Because... Taken in, in, in isolation, taken as if the universe was just that one company, it would be a bad news story. Mm-hmm. But when you grade them on the curve of what everyone else is doing, <laughs> suddenly it changes and you're like, oh, actually, they're only a they're C less minus. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess it's sort of the other thing I think that's important to understand the context here is that it, they didn't used to be allowed to do this. Until Ajit Pai's, um, ah, sugar, three-letter acronym, Ajit FCC? Pai ran the... FTC? Thank you. FCC, FCC. CC, communications, FCC. So Ajit Pai's FCC changed the rules on this, and then all the carriers would, oh, great, thank you. And so one would hope that maybe the FCC could change its mind again and stop this. And the other thing, this is just me getting on my personal soapbox, but... I really, 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 really dislike when I pay for something that they then also take a second payment by stealing my privacy. It's like, yeah, you're like free. At least you can you can somehow justify that. Right. Correct. Google, yeah, Google tracks you, but you get it for free. Yeah, they're a for profit company. They have to make their money somehow. The deal is I get to use the stuff for no monetary cost. I give you my privacy instead. OK, it's a deal. But I am if I'm paying over the odds, because American prices are above what they should be compared to the rest of the Western world, you're already paying over the odds for a service, and then they decide to help themselves to your privacy too. I'm like, that's not fair. Yeah. It, that makes me so cranky. And I don't even live in America. Why am I cranky? But it, I don't know. It just really rubs me up the wrong way. Just, that's not right. That's yeah, off my, uh, my... Mike Price uh, posted in our Slack, podfeet.com slash Slack, a, uh, that there's a National Geographic special on the making of the Mars rover. And it is a spectacular, spectacular show. We've only watched the first 40 minutes. I think it's about an hour and a half. And it is, it uh-huh. is really amazing. It's, a, um, it's actually a celebration of the work the technicians do. Like they, they kind of down, they actually downplay, well, the engineers are all theoretical and smart, but look at what the technicians have to do. And this is way, this is really, really, really hard stuff. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is I pay uh, a couple hundred dollars a month for my my cable, my my Fios subscription that gets me my TV, and they interrupted it every 30 minutes with five ads. <sighs> and it's like, oh, come on, I'm paying for this, you know, what are you doing? So that that's, that gets back to that. And uh, yeah. when we get to palate cleansers, you did miss a palate cleanser. I, I uh, alerted oh, you sure. too. So we'll, I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes when we get there.
Okay, good. Then I will it's a mentally really good one. You're going to love it. Perfect. This is good. Yeah, because we have stories. More palate cleansers uh, are good. <laughs> yeah, more palate cleansers are always good. Um, moving on. Uh, actually, sorry. Am I good to move on? Since yes. I didn't write these show notes, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, action alerts then. Um, Apple released a bunch of security updates for iOS 14, watchOS 7, and macOS Big Sur, which they recommended for all users because they contained a fairly nasty bug in WebKit. So at this stage, it's been two weeks since that happened, so or a little under two weeks. We're close to two weeks. So hopefully you've all patchy, patchy, patched, patched. So, you know, ah. I never get the notices on these. I Whenever I find out about them, I tell Steve, and Steve's like, Elson, I got that three days ago. What are you talking about? I have did not know there was another watchOS update. I've done iOS 14 and macOS Big Sur because somebody told me about it. I did huh. not know there was a watchOS update, so I have not patchy, patch, patch, patch. So thank you. Okay. Well, the, as I say, that is the point of the action alerts, right? Um, if you flick your Microsoft hat on then, Patch Tuesday has been and gone for the Microsoft Ease. 82 flaws, 10 critical, one under active exploitation in the wild in good old-fashioned IE of all terrible places to have it happen. So, um, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. All right. In terms of um, worthy warnings, um, something that sort of crossed my eye is um there was a bug in the cloud component of an iphone app called ac or call recorder that basically made all of your call recordings available to the world so anyone who used that call recording app be aware that anything you recorded was made public and that may or may not be important to you in a yeah, very similar before, vein, you, before you go past that, um, I'd like to do a public service announcement on the built-in voice memo app on uh, the iPhone. Okay. Make a, uh, make a recording and send it to somebody and have them read you the name of the file. The name of the file is your address where you recorded it. Huh. As in your Apple ID or? No, your, your physical address, physically where you were when you recorded it. Ha, huh. which is a great feature if you never share the file. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was just like, yeah. I looked at it, I was going, no, I don't want that. Gee, yeah, I mean, that's okay if I share it with my darling beloved, but not so much if I share it more widely. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. that is a PSA. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, listener Linda suggested including this one in the show notes, um, and I think she's right that we should be aware that these things happen. Um, a hack of video security company for CADA exposes footage from 150,000 connected cameras, including like the inside of an EOR and various horrible places, a Tesla lab as well, which might have been interesting. Definitely better than Cloudflare, or sorry, than uh, the, the EOR. Um, but yeah, so... Be careful who you outsource your security cameras to. It may be great to have them all in the cloud and centrally managed, but you're you're giving a lot of trust, so give that trust carefully, I guess is the moral of the story. Linda Linda's point in her email was basically I think it's important people know this kind of stuff happens so that you don't they don't blindly go and just throw stuff at the cloud. So hence I think I agree. So yeah. there it is. Um, and then Vice really impressed me in the last two weeks. In fact, let me back up. Vice have been really impressing me in the last year because every single time one of their technology articles crosses my radar, it is superb. Hmm. And 
since we last recorded, they have done two superb security articles. Um, the first is a very good dive into a whole new way in which SMS is broken. I mean, we already know it's broken, but it turns out it's double broken. It's even more broken than we thought, and it's even easier to break than we thought because... And I, I read the whole article in great detail, and to the best of my understanding, this is a problem... This particular new attack vector is US-based because the US carriers have decided it's far too much effort to manage the back-end routing for text messages, SMS messages. So they've outsourced it to a company called Network something or other, I can't remember just now, NetNumber. And NetNumber should be doing all sorts of security stuff to make sure that text messages actually go to the right SIM card. Mm-hmm. But they're being a teeny bit lackadaisical so that if you get a $16 subscription to a bunch of services that are meant for mass marketing, you can actually convince NetNumber to redirect a random person's SMS messages to you. And unlike when you hijack someone's SIM, their phone continues to appear to function completely normally. It's just that they don't know they're not getting their text messages and that mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. And so... With permission, an attacker demonstrated to a vice journalist that for $16, they could break into a whole bunch of their cloud-connected accounts by doing password resets over SMS. Jeez. And it was shockingly easy. So I I think Brian Krebs was, I think Brian Krebs' headline was something like, can we all agree that SMS is really dead now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, so anyway. It's a good thing we have three palate cleansers this week, Bart. I'd right? kill that, I know. I, I, that's this. why I smiled when you said there was an extra one, because I knew these were coming. Okay. Uh, and then listener George um, sent along another very good article from Vice. And I was, I was initially hoping to be smug and say, ha, 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 you silly Americans. Unfortunately, no smugness from Bart. So there's a company that aggregates telemetry data from all the smart parts in all the cars around the world and they're offering it for sale to anyone who'd like including the u.s military and it's not like it's literally everyone in the world who has a car that in any way phones home these guys have managed to aggregate that data source and it would appear there is no regulations on this kind of stuff because no one Hmm. thought of it it's like okay wow um the other thing, actually, here's another very interesting thing. Um, both of these stories from Vice, they are both quoting Senator Ron Wyden, whose office is trying to shine light on these things. Hmm. So interesting that there is some oversight happening in the US. Um, so maybe we will get some oh, yeah, step says, one, shine light. Step two, office, deal with it. The, officer, the office of Senator Ron Wyden obtained and then provided the document to Motherboard. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So huh. it's interesting. It's for the last five years or so, whenever there is intelligent government oversight of tech, it is almost inevitable that Ron Wyden's name is like two words away in the sentence. And it's very rare to have a technically competent politician. And they always make me smile. So there we go. <laughs> interesting to see. Don't take it for granted. Absolutely, Yonk, exactly. Uh, notable news. Um, 
very interesting development in the whole App Store thing in Russia. So in 2019, Russia passed a law mandating that every cell phone sold, every smartphone sold in Russia would have to come with pre-installed Russian versions of common apps. The idea, well, officially the idea is to promote Russian tech companies. There are other conspiracy right. theories about promoting government access, but let's, okay, those those theories exist. So the law was that the, the, the cell phone providers would have to pre-install the software. And Apple, they have compromised, but they have managed to actually compromise. So instead of the apps being pre-installed, what will happen from, I think it's April 15th, this goes into effect, or was it April 1st? Anyway, shortly. When you activate a Russian iPhone, you know the way when you start it up, it asks you, do you want to use Hey Siri? Do you want to do this, that, and the other? Yeah. There will now be an extra screen on the Russian phone saying, here are a bunch of apps recommended by the, go by the Russian government's Department of Commerce. They're all pre-ticked, but you can untick them. And then the ones you leave ticked will then be installed from the App Store. That seems like a pretty good compromise. And nothing happens it, to you, no. if, in theory, if you don't? Correct. Correct. Hmm. So this reminds me of the browser choice option that the EU forced Microsoft to put into Windows in Europe, which I guess you, would, you wouldn't be familiar with because you wouldn't have seen it. No, we've, you had American we've talked Windows. about it. Yeah. Where, so where basically you got a choice of browsers? Correct. Uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of negotiation with that because the order had to be randomized so that no one got mm -hmm. a, got any sort of preference. There was right. a whole big who have it, who would go on the list of five, and the, 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 how it would be randomized. But it, it sort of reminded me of that. And I, I a lot of people are treating this as the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Apple have caved to a foreign government, and I'm thinking, as caving goes, that's that's not a bad compromise. Yeah, if we, if we change the the country, like. Uh, France has a, a really thriving tech community. And mm. uh, well, actually, let's take India it does. because India is really uh, adamant that as much be done in their country as possible. Like you can't sell iPhones unless you build iPhones there. What yeah. if all Indian phones, they wanted to make sure that the top 10 Indian uh, iOS apps were offered very visibly as first party citizens to a, uh, to a phone? We yeah. wouldn't think that that was terrible. If it was France, we wouldn't think it was terrible. That would be a that'd be kind of like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. You know, you're promoting the top apps from your country. I mean, we don't exactly. trust Russia any farther than we can throw them, so that's probably not what's happening. But from Apple's yeah. perspective, that's an agnostic thing to do. I think. Okay, so you know, I mean, everyone's like, this is a precedent. This is terrible, and I'm going, well, yeah, it is a precedent. Well, I'm not seeing the terrible. If this is how Apple end up compromising with all the different governments who want to assert control of the App Store, I can live with that as a, as a compromise. They could have been so much, so much worse. So on the whole, again, we're grading on curves. Yay! Um, <laughs> on this curve, I, I think I'll go with it. Um, okay. And while we're grading on curves, let's grade another company on a curve, which is TikTok. So there is news doing the rounds that TikTok are terrible because they are disabling the ability to opt out of personalized ads. And that is a true statement. TikTok are disabling the ability to stop pers personalized ads. Okay. But they're not removing the ability to opt out of cross-app and website tracking. Hmm. So 
at the moment, your choices are no personalized ads based on anything or personalized ads based on what you do on TikTok, what you do on the web and what you do in other apps. So in other words, tracking okay. plus personalized or no personalized. And the new reality starting uh, April 15th is personal ads based on what you do on TikTok only or personal ads based on what you do in TikTok, the web and in other apps. Hmm. Okay. And so they're, they're, giving you, they're allowing you to opt out of third party tracking. Correct. And what they're doing is basically what all their competition are doing already. Hmm. So in the abstract, it's better now than it will be on April 15th. But grading them on the curve of what everyone else is doing in the space they're competing in, it's like, oh, you're just returning to the mean. This is just, a, you're, you're, you're doing what everyone else is doing. It's like, okay. I mean, I doing ads based not... on your TikTok activity sounds like that seems reasonable. It does for a free service, doesn't it? Yeah. Plus a yeah. free service that brings so much joy. I know you love it to bits. And I, so, yeah, so if they're going to send ads to you based on all the things you love on TikTok, that doesn't strike me as a calamity. Right. And I also can't picture what on earth it would be because it's usually people lip syncing a comedian or women uh, showing off their babies that are doing something funny. So I don't know if so I, I guess get funny t-shirts? baby shirts. Yeah, I don't know. T-shirts and merchandise is the only thing I can think of that would be relevant based on that. Yeah, but, right. you know, hey, if they think they can make some money from it, okay. Um, and then, because I wanted to end the notable news in an upbeat, um, social media companies, lots of them have been busy making social media suck less, which is always nice. So Instagram are going to prevent people DMing under 18s who don't follow them. So this idea of predators preying on teenagers would just became an awful lot harder on Instagram. So that's only a good news story. Facebook are going to get way stricter about how they deal with people who break rules in groups. So that was kind of a way to avoid getting into trouble was to just be a naughty person in groups. But now they're cracking down way harder on that. Hmm. Obviously, to me, that seems like a response to January 6th. Right. But hey, good, right? It's a good response. So good. Barn door, uh, horse out, but okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll take it, right? Because yeah. uh, there's other horses. Um, so <laughs> Twitter have announced that they're going to allow you to add multiple security keys to a single Twitter account, which for a shared corporate account is darn handy because then you could have different people, particularly if they're working in physically separate places where it might have been plausible to have a key in the office. You know, that wasn't plausible the last year. I don't know so this what is uh, security key support is. Uh, a, a, a dongle, a hardware physical 2FA contraption, a YubiKey, that kind so of thing. So have more than one YubiKey for one Twitter account? Correct. So oh, that for you businesses. Okay, got you. Bing, bing. Okay, there we yeah. go. All right. Uh, and Facebook are adding support for using your iPhone as a security key. So that's that whole Fido2 thing. So again, okay. only a good thing. Good. And then a final good thing that's not to do with social media. It's just another final good thing. The Linux Foundation have announced a new initiative. They are going to provide free digital code signing to open source software. So they want no. to do for the open source community what Let's Encrypt did for the web. Oh, wow. So this could have solved the problem that, uh, oh, shoot, what was it? The, one of the... Um, Handbrake. Handbrake. Yeah, one of the rippings. I was trying to think of the name of the company. The handbrake problem was that nobody yeah. owns the project because it's an open source project. 
And so nobody was signing the code because nobody owned it. Yeah, so this will provide a mechanism. Basically, how do you, how do you pay for code signing in an open source project by volunteers? Well, there is going to be a mechanism that's free so that the open source community can digitally sign. And it's going to be integrated into the various um, distribution platforms. So whether that be stuff like NPM for managing JavaScript modules, hmm. or whether that be Yeoman install, apt-get, and so forth for managing Linux packages. So basically, the package managers of various types will integrate with this code signing. And so, that will just add a whole layer of authenticity. So Yeah. You know. So um, that's interesting, but the you still need a human to be in charge, don't you? Okay, a but, developer. Right, but that's the way, at an open source project, there is already a so-called maintainer who is packaging the code and submitting it to these various places. You don't think there's so there multiple already is people? The human. Do, I think there's multiple people, and that was the problem with a handbrake. Handbrake, by the way, when somebody stepped up and said, okay, I will be the developer and I will be the one who does the code signing. But some human has to say, I will be that person, even if it's a collective of 20 people normally. Correct. And at the moment, the, the, not only do the people have to organize themselves, which they have to do anyway to, in order to get software published, but right now they have to find money and arrange digital certificates and prove they are who they say they are. And like, it, It's a whole big hurdle. And it involves money, which is hard to do in a, something you're doing for fun. So what this right. is going to do is it's going to allow you to know that the software has come from the project it says it's come from. So it's not asserting that the project is good, that the developers are good guys. What it's asserting is that the code you are getting really is from the project it says it's from and that it has not been altered since it's left that project. Right, right. So that that is... Although yeah, it's, it's not like a patsy, it's still very valuable. So I'm delighted. So I really hope this goes well for them. And the Linux yeah. Foundation is a good place to do this from. So yeah. all good. That's awesome. Uh, in terms then of excellent explainers, um, our good friend Tom Merritt comes in for, uh, I, I was just really impressed with this. So there's a whole big hoo-ha at the moment about non-fungible tokens or NFC. NFTs. And, uh, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Not, not near field communication, <laughs> non-fungible tokens. Right. So uh, Tom's wonderful Know A Little More podcast tackled the underlying technology and NFTs, which is basically blockchain. So know a little more about blockchain. Yeah, don't, just, don't expect to walk away understanding NFTs and why they exist and who's using them or anything like that. It's, it's really mostly focused on the blockchain. But if you understand the blockchain, then you'll have at least a hope of figuring out what this non-fungible token craziness is about. It is. And that's why I have a second related excellent explainer, which wouldn't have made it into these show notes were it not for Tom's post. But uh, Planet Money addressed that aspect of it. So they don't go into the technology, which is a good thing because they're economists and they would have done a terrible job of the technology. But once you've understood the technology, thanks to Tom, then I think the next logical thing to do is to listen to the Planet Money episode entitled the $69 million JPEG, which is exactly about the most famous of these NFTs. And once, you know, Tom will give you the tech, Planet Money will give you the economics. And I certainly felt I understood what was going on infinitely better having listened to both of those podcasts than before yeah if if <laughs> i'm going to do something terrible here but i'm going to try uh if you've never heard of non-fungible tokens nfts think 
collectible playing cards, except with something that doesn't have a physical medium. It is a uh, a JPEG or a recording, a piece of artwork uh, that is valuable simply because we've said it is. And I'm not going to go any yeah. further than that. That's just the little piece of an NFT, just so you have some reason to try to go, wait, what? And then that means you Alice- followed me perfectly. You have read my mind because when people ask me, so Bart, give me a quick take on NFTs, it's like they're digital collectibles. Yeah. And the reason I think it's a good analogy is because someone who collects things, to them, it is really meaningful and they get genuine joy and value from their collection. And to other people, they're all batshit crazy. (laughs) What do you mean you collect mugs? What What are you doing? That's ridiculous. Yeah. And whenever I hear people say that NFTs are ridiculous, I'm like, they are to you, but mm. so is my collection. Well, I don't have a collection of anything weird, but if I did, it would right. be like people collect things and they enjoy it and it gives them joy. Leave them at it. I'm not going to take credit for the analogy either. I've only learned that from three weeks straight of Tom talking about NFTs on uh, Daily Tech News Show. So uh, that's the best uh, analogy, especially because people say, uh, well, with an NFT, how do you, pr- how do you, uh, how do you play with it? Well, you don't play with that that rare uh, baseball card, do you? No, you've got it in a sealed container inside of a safe somewhere, but you know you have it. Yeah, it's like Star Wars figures. You know, how do you play with them? You don't. don't. Are you mad? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, moving Uh, on. Moving on. The other one that caught my eye was a good explainer of web shells because the uh, the, the Hafnium hack of the um, Exchange Online, uh, sorry, not Exchange Online, the, the self-hosted exchange servers, one of the things that malware was doing was dropping web shells all over the place. Well, what is a web shell? Well, Serious Security have the explainer to explain to you what a web shell is. So there we go. I thought that was timely. Great. Uh, And then interesting insights. This one caught my eye because it's actually related to the Facebook conversation. So, you know, we had Zuckerberg saying that, yeah, this whole tracking thing might be grand because we just become first party people. Well, uh, I more sort of asked the question, you know, why are Google being so quiet about this app tracking transparency thing? And the answer is because they've already figured out how they're going to live in a world without app tracking, without tracking people across apps explicitly. And uh, because of who they are and because of the amount of market power they have, they have a pretty good path to continuing to sort of track you without tracking you. So it's an interesting insight into why Google are not jumping up and down, having full page ads in the New York Times. They don't need to. (laughs) Okay. And that brings us on to cleansing our palates. So do you want to go first with your your one I forgot? You go last. Okay. So we talked a lot in the previous few um, palate cleansers about the Perseverance rover landing on Mars with the sky crane and all the coolness. And the first time we just talked about how cool the whole sky crane idea was. And then we talked about the video of it actually happening on another planet. Uh, And one of the things that came up during this whole thing was that, and NASA didn't tell people about this up front, but the parachute had this strange pattern. It clearly wasn't random. And so the internet collectively asked itself, if this isn't random, this is probably a message. And it was a message. They had encoded a message into the parachute. Uh, and now there's a website that implements the algorithm so you can type in your own text and it will create a parachute for you that encodes your message. So in the show notes, you'll find two images. The first one is just a parachute, which is basically a bunch of white and red. 
And the second image is the same parachute with the explanation over the top. What it says is stay patched and stay secure. <laughs> That's cool. Yes. So that was that was the first podcast. That was amazing. The second one, a um, friend of the show, Bren, Bren Finan, sent to me. It's basically 12 years worth of astrophotography to produce the most amazing picture of the Milky Way you could possibly conceivably imagine. 12 years of images stacked together. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's just amazing. Like it's so detailed. You can just zoom into all the coolness of our galaxy. So there we go. All right. So this is uh, mine is a uh, an announcement and a a uh, a fun thing, a nice palate cleanser. Um, I had alerted you to this in our Slack a few days ago. There's a free one day open source 101 conference on Tuesday, March 30th that that I think might be fun for people to register to. So I've got a link in the show notes to that. So it's a 101. It's just an introductory mm-hmm. thing and it's free. Uh, I posted that in our Slack and Mike Price alerted us to their superb harassment policy for the conference. It says, all things open conference is dedicated to providing a harassment free conference experience for everyone, regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, race, religion, operating system, or text editor of choice. (laughs) That made me laugh so much because I was thinking to myself, given the audience for this conference, those last two are the most likely to cause the most offense. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, that that was my little contribution. Love it. Love it. Okay, well, that uh, wraps up another two weeks worth of security news. And thankfully, our palate has been well cleansed. So uh, all that remains to say is until next time, as the parachute says, actually, the parachute couldn't say stay patched so you stay secure because there wasn't, it wouldn't, I couldn't get the words in. There wasn't enough space in the parachute. We need a bigger parachute. Uh, but anyway, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, your Everything is Fiddly recordings. We have a fantastic one coming next week from Ray Robertson that is absolutely epic. You can also send in your comments and suggestions. Do all of that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. And remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. Do you want to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast? Go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. If you'd rather do a one-time donation, podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join our conversation over on Slack, podfeed.com slash Slack. If you prefer Facebook, we're there too, podfeed.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.